Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which Thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome back. We are in a continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And I'll tell you, I enter into this particular study with a certain degree of fear and trepidation because Paul deals with what can only be described as controversial subjects. But nevertheless, um, it's something that we need to tackle. And so we're going to do that with a Large degree of humility, let me say, as we head into it. But nevertheless, conscious of the fact that this is the word of the Lord and it's been written, as I said in that collect, for our learning. That we might be equipped for every good work. So that's how we want to approach this today. So Romans chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 18, but we're going to look at the verses following. Uh, we probably will finish out the entire chapter. So we're going to go ahead and read verses 18 and following through the end of this chapter today. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another, one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now we said last week that Paul has really gotten into the heart of this letter. Right from the very beginning, we've dispensed with all of the preliminary matters, and Paul is now talking about why the gospel is so necessary. And it is because, he says... The wrath of God is being poured out upon humanity. Now, why is the wrath of God being poured out upon humanity? It's because, Paul says, mankind is not ignorant of the truth. Mankind has suppressed the truth. God has made himself known, Paul says, in the things that have been made. And we said that this is what theologians commonly refer to as general revelation. There are two kinds of revelation. There is general revelation and there is special revelation. General revelation is God's revelation of himself in the created order. Paul is basically saying, look at the world around you. Look at the order that you see in creation. Take a look at the galaxies and the stars and the atoms and so forth, things that would have been uh, unknown to him to some degree, but nevertheless, as we have gone on with science over the centuries, we've come to realize that there is a great texture and there's a great order in the universe. And Paul says, all of this is an indicator to us if we use our common sense that there is a God. And so he says, man is without excuse. Atheism is not a tenable position, Paul says. 
Now, Paul is fully aware of the fact that general revelation has its limits. General revelation, God making Himself known in creation, can tell you that there is a Creator. It cannot tell you the character of that Creator. Because we've said in nature, you sort of get a mixed message. There are beautiful things in nature, which might indicate that God is loving and kind, but there are also, as we all know, terrible things in nature that cause great disaster and suffering among human beings. And so, if you're only looking to general revelation, to God revealing Himself in creation, you'll come to the conclusion that there is a God, but you won't necessarily know what that God is like. It's enough revelation to condemn you, but it's not enough revelation to save you. In order to be saved, you need a different kind of revelation. You need that special revelation where God makes Himself known in a very specific way. And of course, that is what He has done in Jesus Christ. God has made Himself known. If you want to know what God is like, you look into the eyes of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, Paul says, God has made Himself known, and so men are without excuse. Why? Well, they're without excuse because if they can come to the conclusion that there is a God, that there is a Creator, then it only stands to reason that the one thing you should do more than anything else is seek out that God. It only stands to reason that if a God exists, He is, by consequence, the most important thing in the world. And so Paul says the problem for human beings is not that they don't know that there is a God. They're suppressing the truth. Because if they would seek Him, they would find Him. Isn't that what Jesus said? Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. But he says the problem is that human beings don't want to find God. Human beings, going back to Genesis want to be in charge of their own lives. They want to be little gods and goddesses. They want to be in charge of their own lives and do their own things. And so what they do is they suppress the truth about God. He goes on to say this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. That's a theme we're going to come back to in just a moment and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says, when you turn away from God, when you suppress the truth, there is a consequence. There's a consequence for everything we do. Sometimes the consequences are good, sometimes they're bad. But Paul says there is a consequence. If you suppress the truth and you turn away from God, there will be a consequence. And the first consequence that he mentions here is that they become futile in their thinking. They become futile in their thinking. That is to say, the first thing that happens when you suppress the truth is that your mind is affected. Your mind is affected and you start on this downhill spiral. And you can see how Paul describes it. One commentator described this section as lifting the lid on hell. And you can see it is a race to the bottom. You can almost feel yourself as you're reading the text. I heard some of you chuckle out there. You can almost feel as though you're picking up steam. I don't know if any of you have ever done any downhill skiing. But if you've ever been on skis for the first time in your life, getting started is not the problem. It's stopping that is the problem. It's a race to the bottom. And if you don't stop, you know you're going to crash. And you can feel that momentum in what Paul says here in this opening chapter of Romans. This race to the bottom. This downward spiral. And it begins, he says, first of all, with the futility of our thinking. Now, there are a number of Greek words in this text. I don't always point out Greek words because I know a lot of people say, well, it's all Greek to me. I don't understand Greek anyway. You uh, biblical scholars, you're really interested in that sort of thing. But sometimes what you discover is that the Greek can actually cast a great deal of light on something. And I think that is the case here. Uh, there is a sense in which something really is lost in the translation and the translation from Greek to English. So I want to go back and look at some of these words. When Paul says that phrase, futile in their thinking, when they turn away from God, when they suppress the truth, the first thing that happens is they become futile in their thinking. The, Paul, the word that Paul uses there for thinking is an interesting one. It is the word diaglomotsai. 
And you'll notice that there is, in the root of that Greek term, the word dialogue. That's, that's what it means. It is, a, it is a dialogue. Now, what is a dialogue? It's a conversation, isn't it? When you're in dialogue with somebody, you're in conversation with somebody. Paul says the first thing that happens when a person suppresses the truth and turns away from God is that they begin to have a dialogue. But it's a dialogue with themselves. And that's key. Why? Because when you've abandoned God, there is within every single one of us a desire, let's be honest, to make sense of the world. To make sense of what we experience in life. Anybody that's ever been through a crisis, especially if you've had something terrible happen in your life, life the, the unexpected loss of a loved one, or somebody gets diagnosed, a, a child with a terrible disease like leukemia. What do we try to do? We try desperately to make sense of it, don't we? We want to understand. Now, why is there this desire within all of us to make sense of that sort of a situation? It's because we're made in the image of God. We've been given minds to think. And so we're trying to sort it out. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to make sense of the world. And Paul says that's the first thing that we try to do. When we abandon God, the world begins to look chaotic all of a sudden. It begins to look confusing. Things don't make sense. And because we're made in the image of God, there is this yearning, this burning desire to make sense. And so we begin to have a dialogue with ourselves. We begin to try and make sense of what we see. That's the first word that Paul uses. Now, he goes on to say, they become futile in their thinking, they begin to have a dialogue with themselves, trying to make sense of things, and their foolish hearts become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. Now that phrase, claiming to be wise, has at its root that word sophoi. It's the word from which we get terms sophistry, sophisticated, sophomore. But you'll also see that there's another Greek word in there. Philia, philios, love. It's the word from which we get terms like philosophy, philosopher, philosophical. And you combine them two, and the word comes out as sophisticated. Now, what is a sophisticated person? A sophisticated person, the way we think of a sophisticated person, is somebody who is wise in the ways of the world. Isn't that? You say a sophisticated person, that's a worldly person. And Paul says that's exactly what happens. You abandon God, and the world no longer makes sense, so you begin to have a dialogue with yourself, you begin to try to sort things out, and you come up with an explanation for things. It may not be a particularly good explanation, but it gets you through. And you see yourself as wise, wise in the ways of the world. You become a philosopher. What is a philosopher? Someone who loves understanding. And so that's the second thing that Paul says happens to us. We have to make sense of the world, so we have a dialogue with ourselves. We become wise in the ways of the world and we come up with a worldly, sophisticated explanation. But he says what really happens is that we claim to be wise, but in so doing we actually become fools. Because it's a man-made explanation. It's not God's explanation. And the word that's up there on the screen is a rather lengthy word. That's because it's a verb. Well, what I want you to notice is the word that is in the middle. It is the word what? Moron. The Greek is moros. That's why it's translated as foolish. Paul says this is what's going to happen to a person when they suppress the truth about God. They know that there's a God. They know that they should seek after Him and find Him but they don't want to find Him. They want to be in charge of their own lives, and so they suppress the truth. The world no longer makes sense. They begin to have a dialogue with themselves to make sense of the world, 
they come up with an explanation, a worldly explanation as opposed to a heavenly explanation, and they think that they are wise in the ways of the world. They declare themselves to be sophisticated, but in fact, Paul says, what they have really become, having forsaken he who is the source of all truth, is that they become moronic. Now that's how Paul traces it out. And they exchange the truth for a lie and end up worshiping created things rather than the Creator. Now you can see that's the beginning. It's like being on those skis at the top of the hill and you start down and when you begin to start down that path, what's going to happen? If you don't know how to stop, it's going to be absolutely disastrous. And that's what Paul is talking about. This downhill, downward spiral. Now let me give you a picture of this. I say a picture is worth a thousand words. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. And it's a picture that doesn't even come from the New Testament. It actually comes from the Old Testament. So keep your finger there in Romans for a moment and turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah is toward the end of the Old Testament. Give you time to get there. The book of Jonah. Now you know the story of Jonah. At least, if anything at all, you know the story of Jonah and the fish. That may be the only part that you know, but you know that story of Jonah and the great fish. I remember a story that uh, one of my professors at Virginia Seminary told. He was preaching on one occasion uh, at a church, and he really got wound up, and he was preaching on Jonah. I think it was Lent, he was preaching on Jonah, and he got all excited, and in the course of his uh, delivery, he said that in, the, in, in Jonah's sin, what happened was that he swallowed the whale, or he swallowed the fish. Jonah swallowed the fish instead of the fish swallowing Jonah. And uh, he was coming out of church, and you know there's always going to be somebody that's going to correct you. That's just inevitable. And uh, there was a little old lady, she came up to him as he was standing there receiving line and everybody thanking him for coming and so forth. And she said, Reverend, I just need to tell you, she said, you got it wrong. And he, he didn't even realize he'd made the mistake. And um, she said, um, well, you did. And he said, well, what did I do? She said, you said that Jonah swallowed the fish, not the fish that swallowed Jonah. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Madam, you're missing the point. Some fantastic swallowing took place somewhere. That may be the only part of the book of Jonah that you know, but we're going to take a look at it just for a moment. You know the story. The story is, is that God came to Jonah and gave Jonah a commission that he was to go to the city of Nineveh and he was to preach the word of repentance to the people of that great city. Jonah didn't want to go there. He hated the Ninevites. And that's how the text begins. So let's just go ahead and we're going to read through... Um, the first five verses, and then we're going to skip ahead. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Now, you know, that's the story. And you also know what happens is that the wind and the sea do not abate. They're very anxious about that. They come to the conclusion that somebody must have done something to anger the gods. And there's only one person who knows who it is. And that's Jonah. And he finally comes up and he says, this, nobody's going to survive this. I'm the problem here. You might as well throw me overboard. Um, in the days of sailing vessels, when a ship went into a, a difficult storm or something, uh, sailors would sometimes become superstitious and they would wonder if there was a, quote, Jonah on board that was causing this. 
And so Jonah says, there's only one thing that you can do. You're going to have to throw me overboard. And they don't want to do that, but initially uh, they're reluctant, but eventually they decided, okay, maybe this will help. And so they do. They, they throw Jonah overboard. And you know the story. He goes down. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, here's what I want you to notice. It's a literary device that the author is using, but it's very effective. Jonah is called by God to do something. Jonah doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, so... God says, go right, Jonah goes left. He goes his own way. And everything that happens as a result of going his own way, suppressing the truth, is that it's a downhill spiral. And that's what I want you to notice, how the author uses the word down. Every time he mentions Jonah, Jonah's going down. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He had lain down. And then finally, when he is cast into the sea, what does it say? If you turn to verse 6 of chapter 2, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The consequence of Jonah turning away from the Lord is that he went down, 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 down. And that's a picture of exactly what Paul is talking about here in this first chapter of Romans. We begin to go down. And it all starts with the way we think. And then there comes this shocking phrase, going back now to Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they have suppressed the truth, because they have come up with their own explanations for the world, because they declared themselves to be sophisticated, but they have become morons, because their minds have become darkened, they have started down. And what God does is He eventually takes off all the restraints. He gives them up. Now, one commentator had a very, I thought, helpful way of illustrating this. He said, the picture that we often have in our mind of God giving them up, some translations say letting them go, is God just sort of taking his hand off, and they sort of just drift off. The way he described it, he said it would be like an astronaut out in outer space holding a porcelain pitcher. And what he does is he lets go of it, and because there's no gravity, what happens to the pitcher? It sort of just drifts. Off. And he said, that's the way we often imagine it, is that we want to do our own thing, and so what God does is he sort of just lets us go, and we drift off on our own. He said, but that's not really the picture. It's the picture of us holding a porcelain pitcher, and there's a ceramic floor below us, and God lets go of the pitcher, and what happens? Gravity takes over. And that's really the picture. When it says God gave them up, that's what he did. He gives them up to the world. And who is the prince of this world? Who's in charge of this world? And that's why I pointed out to you last week that this is actually the language of a prisoner exchange. That's what God does. He gives them up and He gives them over to the world. Basically, He says, have it your way. You remember that old Burger King commercial? 
Have it your way? That's what God says. And aside from those words, depart from me, I never knew you, these are the most terrifying words we can ever hear. Have it your way. You don't want to do it my way. And of course, that's what human beings have been saying all along. We don't want to do it your way. You stay out of this. I'll take care of this. And God eventually says, fine, have it your way. And that's what Paul says here. That is the consequence of suppressing the truth that eventually you get to a point where God gives them up. And I want you to notice that he says that over and over again. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And finally then in verse 28, we're told that once again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So God gives them up. Now let me give you another example, another illustration, because I do think that pictures are sometimes helpful. A lot of this can be philosophical, a lot of this can be theological, but let's just see how it happens in a human life. Keep your finger here in Romans and turn back again to the Old Testament book of Daniel. I'll give you a chance to get there. Need to use your table of contents, that's fine. We're going to go to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. And this is a story about King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, was the great empire of that day. And we're going to pick up the narrative of Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 28. Listen to how this is described. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. How many of you have ever heard of the famous hanging gardens of Babylon? It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. We've all heard about this. Well, this is Nebuchadnezzar. So he's out there and he's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. He's a mighty ruler, a great warrior. And the king answered and said, that's interesting, he answers and said, who's he answering? Who's he saying to? It's clear from the narrative he's having a dialogue with himself. He's having a conversation with himself. Sounds just like what Paul is talking about. He's trying to make sense of the world, this, this magnificent kingdom that he has, this beauty that he has, and this is what he says. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Paul says when they suppress the truth, they do not honor God and they become thankless. They no longer honor him as God. Well, that's the case here with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going to believe in God. He's going to suppress the truth about God. And so when he looks at all that has been made, he doesn't see the grace of God at work in his life. Instead, he sees his own mighty power. And all of this is for the glory, not of God, but of his own majesty. In verse 31, God gives him up. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. What happens when God gives us up? God gives us up when what? When we suppress the truth, when we want to do things our own way, our minds become darkened 
We claim to be wise, but we become fools. Now what Paul is going to go on to do is trace this in a very graphic I would say that his candor here is almost shocking. But he's going to go through and trace and show us in a way that even we in the 21st century, I would say, especially those of us living in the 21st century, can see. He wants to show us in a very vivid way the graphic results of what happens when you turn away from God. Now you'll notice, and that's why I said I want to tread here carefully because I know this is a very controversial subject. But the question is often asked, why does Paul trace this by talking about sexual sins? Aren't there all kinds of sins out there? But it's clear when Paul goes immediately from the mind to sexual problems. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies with one another because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise doing the same. And then again, and because they refused to acknowledge God, he gave them up. Why does Paul begin with sexual sins? Why does Paul seem to be obsessed with this? And why, someone might ask, does the church always seem to be obsessed with that? I'm going to answer the former, and we'll come back to the second. I think that Paul begins to trace this downhill spiral, this downward spiral, by talking about sex because it's the most obvious example. There are a lot of other sins that are actually more serious than sexual sins. Spiritual sins, for example, are far more serious. Sexual sins are sins in the body. Spiritual sins are spirit sins against that part of us which is eternal. For example, what is the most deadly of all the seven deadly sins? Pride. Pride is the deadliest of all the deadly sins, we're told. Pride goeth before the fall. But pride is not always obvious, is it? Many people have a false humility. So pride is not always apparent. But sexual sins, because they're done in the body, they are often apparent. And I think that's why Paul focuses on this, because it is so clear to us. Now, before we get into this, I want to say something about sex. I know that's why you're all here today. Because sometimes the impression can be given that we Christians sort of look down on sex. We have it, but we don't talk about it. Well, what I want you to understand is that sex is a gift from God. It is a blessed gift from God. Do you know what the first commandment was in the Bible? The very first commandment that God gave to man? That's right. Be fruitful and multiply. The new amplified Miller version is go and have sex. I mean, that's, that's basically what he was saying, wasn't he? He was saying be fruitful and multiply. The first commandment that God gives to the man and the woman is to have sex. Now, one of the things you'll notice is that this is a subject that comes up again and again in the Bible particularly when it talks about relationships between human beings. And the Bible makes it very clear, God gave that command to the man and the woman for three reasons. There are three purposes underlying sex. In the animal world, animals have sex for the one, procreation. And that is the primary purpose, but it is not the only purpose. The Bible speaks of procreation, being fruitful and multiply, but it also talks about sex being for a unitive purpose. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some people would say Paul was repressed sexually. I don't know why anybody thinks that. He talked about it more than anybody else, perhaps, in the New Testament. And he said one of the reasons why we have sex is that we might be united in mind, in body, and in spirit. It is to be an encouragement to one another. That's one of the reasons why he says, if a man and a woman decide not to have sex as husband and wife, he said it should only be for a time. It should only be temporary. It should not be permanent. So there's a procreative purpose, there's a unitive purpose, and here's the final purpose. It's for joy. It's for our enjoyment. 
So it's not just for procreation. It is so that a husband and a wife can truly be united in every sense. This is one of the reasons why one of the grounds for annulment in the church is if the marriage has not been consummated. Because of the church, and when I say the church, I'm not just talking about Catholics. Even in our own Anglican tradition, even in Protestant churches, if a marriage has not been consummated, then technically speaking, it is not a legitimate marriage. So the first thing I want you to understand is that marriage is a gift, and sex is an important part of that relationship. And if you don't believe me, Listen to these words. These are the opening words from the marriage ceremony in the Book of Common Prayer. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, God's idea. And our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by His presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, where He did what? Turned water into wine text we had for the gospel this past week. It signifies to us, here it comes, the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. And Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance, this is the important part, with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. So it is a gift to us, it's an important gift, it is intended, as this text says right here, for our mutual benefit, for our help and comfort in times of prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. It is a blessing. But we only derive the true benefit from this blessing if we do it in the way that God intended it to be done. When somebody creates a device, invents something, and you don't use it as it was intended to be used, it can be what? Harmful, dangerous. For example, something as mundane as putting in a new light bulb. If the socket says, do not go above 40, and you put in a 150-watt bulb, you are in danger of what? Burning the house down. That's what Paul is saying. That sex is a gift. The Bible is saying sex is a gift. Jesus is saying sex is a gift. And it can be a tremendous blessing. But only if we do it in the way that the one who created it intended. And that's why Paul says the first thing that happens after our hearts become darkened and we decide that we are sophisticated and we can decide how things happen, the first thing that we do is our minds become darkened and we begin to act in a way that is destructive to our bodies. What happens to the mind inevitably affects the body. Somebody once said, if the mind be well, then the body be well. And that's true, isn't it? Because if your mind is not well, the body's not going to be well either. And so Paul begins to trace this downward spiral through what happens to our bodies. This is the first thing he says. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and served the creature rather than the creator. The word that is translated here as impurity is the word that basically means sex contrary to what God meant, but specifically, it's what we would refer to as fornication or adultery. All right? Fornication or adultery. I'm going to give you the preface 
to the same marriage ceremony, but from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. All right? I just read to you from the 1979. I like the 1662. <laughs> but you are going to see why we don't use it. But it makes the point that Paul is making here. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and His church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with His presence and first miracle that He wrought in Cana of Galilee. Sounds just like what we heard. And is commended by St. Paul to be honorable among all men. Therefore, it is not to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly or wantonly. And this is the part that I think is really great. We ought to bring this back. To satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding. But reverently, discreetly, advisedly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which holy matrimony was ordained. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of His holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin, impurity. That's what Paul's talking about here. There is the desire within all of us, a sexual desire. In the same way that you have an appetite for food or a thirst for water, we have an appetite for sex. We are sexual beings. That's nothing wrong with that. That's how God created us. But we need to do it within a certain context in order to derive the benefit, and marriage is that context. That's where we derive the benefit. So secondly, it was ordained as a remedy against sin to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of continency, might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. And thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help comfort that one ought to have for one another, both in prosperity and adversity. Constant, that they might be steady, faithful. So you see, the first thing that happens is that men and women, when their minds become darkened, they begin to act out in their bodies, but they're not doing the things that God intended, these things that were given to us as gifts. They're not doing them in the context in which God intended them to be done. We're doing them outside that context. That's the first place. And then he goes, it goes from there to this. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here's why it's the downward spiral. The first thing that happens with our bodies is that we begin to do things that are contrary to what God intended, but they're natural. The second thing that happens is that we continue to engage in sexual relations with our bodies, but now God gives us up to what? Unnatural. Unnatural. Now that's how Paul describes homosexual behavior. We're going to come back to that. I want to be pastorally sensitive to this because I'm sure that there's somebody in the room, probably many people in the room, who have loved ones or have had loved ones or friends who are engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. So how are we as Christians to respond to that? Is our response to be turn or burn? I don't think so. So how are we to respond to it? Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But what I want you to see is that this is the logic of Paul's argument. The first thing that happens on this downward spiral, our minds become darkened, we try to sort things out for ourselves, we begin to act out in our bodies outside the context of holy matrimony, that's the first problem, but then he says it becomes worse. We justify that in our own minds. And the next thing you know is that people are engaged in other kinds of behavior, but this kind of behavior is different. It is against nature. Now, I don't need to go into this. You understand why Paul's saying it is unnatural. It's because a homosexual relationship 
cannot do those things that marriage was intended to do. It cannot procreate. And so that's what Paul is talking about there. Shameful lust is the way he puts it. Unnatural relationships. Now I'm going to take a little excursus, a little sidebar, if you will, and talk a little bit about this because this is such an important subject in our culture. Looking out over this group today, I know that there were a number of you that grew up in a generation where you didn't talk about this sort of thing. You certainly didn't talk about this sort of thing in polite company. How many of you were raised in that kind of an environment? We don't talk about this sort of thing. But what I want you to realize is that we talk about it all the time in our culture now. So there's no use hiding from it. There's no use avoiding it. This is everywhere we turn. We're not just talking about sex. We're talking about every manner of sex. And so we need to understand what the Word of God has to say about this and how we as Christians are to respond. So some people have argued, and I think it's, it's very hard to avoid what Paul is saying here. Some people have argued that what Paul is really talking about here in Romans is not a loving relationship between two committed adults. Now that's what many people will say. What Paul is really talking about here is pederasty. Now what is pederasty? Pederasty is homosexual behavior between an adult male and a boy. And the reason they say that is because in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul operated, pederasty was accepted. Now we may find that appalling, but you have to understand in the Greek world, any of you, how many of you went to Greece with me just a few years ago? We went over to Greece. Did you notice on all of the friezes and so forth, all of the sex that was displayed there in ancient Greece, it was everywhere and it was every manner. It was believed that a man in Greco-Roman culture should marry to produce a family, but a man was perfectly able to have a mistress in order to satisfy, to borrow a phrase from the 1662 prayer book, his carnal lust. Prostitution. And male prostitution was not unheard of in the ancient world. We do know that men used young boys. Christianity was the thing that would drive that out. But it was acceptable in the ancient world. And so some people have argued, when Paul is so hard on this, he's not really talking about a relationship between two consenting adults who simply love each other, but are of the same sex. What Paul is really condemning here is exploitation. Now, is that the case? It is not the case. And why do we know that was not the case? Why do we know that that's not what Paul is actually talking about here? For one very simple reason. Paul not only talks about male homosexual relations, he talks about female homosexual relations. Look again at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. We do know that pederasty was a perfectly acceptable behavior in Greco-Roman culture among men. But do you know that there is not a single reference in any document from antiquity of female pederasty? Now you might say it's a double standard, but that's nevertheless the way it was in the Greco-Roman culture men were allowed to do things that women were not allowed to do. So women were not permitted to engage in that kind of behavior. And we don't have a single reference from antiquity of women doing it. So if Paul was only talking about pederasty, he would never have mentioned female homosexual behavior. He would only mention male homosexual behavior. So we know that what Paul is condemning here is all forms of behavior outside the context of marriage, heterosexual and homosexual. And the other thing you need to understand is this. When Paul talks about marriage, he's not talking about marriage the way the Supreme Court of the United States has recently defined it. 
marriage, as Paul understood it, and as it has been understood since the beginning of time, is a relationship between a man and a woman. So we know that that's what Paul is dealing with. That, that's what Paul is condemning here as part of this downward spiral. Now, is this the only place where we hear about homosexual behavior? The obvious answer is no. It is not. And that's why, if you look at some of the other passages, it casts light. One of the most famous passages is from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, which talks about homosexual behavior, that in the Jewish context it was punishable by death. Incidentally, in many parts of the world, until about the 1950s and the 1960s, it was punishable by imprisonment. In Britain, for example, it was against the law in the 1950s and 60s. You could be imprisoned for engaging in that kind of behavior. And well into the 70s and 80s, there were many states that had laws against this as well. What I will say is this. You can't legislate morality. Try as you might. But the point is that in the Old Testament, there were laws against this type of behavior. But of course, we're New Testament Christians, so what we really want to take a look at is the New Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about this? And there's one passage in particular that I want to take you to. You can look at those references yourself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and so forth, but I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. And that's what I want you to take a look at. And I want to sort of tease this out a little bit. Now, Paul is writing... He's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, those of you who were at the Wednesday night service heard Bill do a homily from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. Corinth, as many of you know, was a um, renowned city in the ancient world. I always refer to it by the three C's. It was cosmopolitan, it was commercial, and it was corrupt. And when Paul established the church there in Corinth, I always refer to the Corinthian church as Paul's problem child. He was always dealing with the issues in the church in Corinth. This particular chapter deals with lawsuits against believers. But it's interesting. He goes on from that to talk about something else. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying you need to act in a righteous manner because you know the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to be in a right relationship with God. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word that is translated here as men who practice homosexuality is an interesting. It is a combination of two words. It is the Greek word malakoi, and it is the word arsenikoite. Now the Greek word arsenikoite basically means, literal translation, going back to the Old Testament, sodomite. The word malakoi basically means male prostitute. Literally translated, what Paul is saying is the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Now the reason I'm pointing out this to you is not to make you squirm in your seats today. I'm glad you ate your lunch before we begin the class. What I want you to understand is that as Christians, we have to take seriously what the Word of God says about this. And because it is such an enormous issue in our culture, the question is, how are we to relate to it? And it is very clear, nobody can avoid the fact that the New Testament speaks to this and the New Testament condemns it as behavior unacceptable to God. Now, the question that often arises at this point is, okay, okay, okay. I'm persuaded Paul doesn't like it. But what does Jesus say about it? I mean, that's the trump card, isn't it? You know, oh, I know what Paul did. Paul, you know, Paul was this, that, and the other thing. But what does Jesus? Jesus 
He's the one that really matters. What does Jesus have to say about this? And oftentimes, people will point out the fact that Jesus never addresses the issue of homosexuality. Is that true? Rhetorical question. Is that true? The answer is yes and no. It is true he never addresses the subject explicitly. Nowhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels, do we ever hear Jesus saying anything about this. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But there's a problem with making Jesus the trump card over Paul. First of all, because every Sunday we stand up in the Creed and we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, don't we? Which is to say that ours is a faith that is built upon the witness of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus passed his ministry on to the apostles. When Paul speaks or Peter speaks, they speak with the authority of Christ. That's what we need to understand. But nevertheless, let's take a look at what Jesus had to say about the subject. I said he didn't say anything, but I said at the same time he did. What I want you to take a look at is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're just dealing with all kinds of controversial subjects today. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, verse 3, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was a school of thought in Jesus' day that a man had a right to divorce his wife for any reason, even if she burnt his breakfast. That was enough for him to write her a certificate of divorce and send her off. Women had very few rights, even within Judaism in the first century. Christianity would change all of that. Christianity would change that as well. So how's Jesus going to answer? He answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. I said there was a school of thought that said you could divorce your wife for any reason. There was another school of thought that said you could not divorce your wife for any reason. And what everybody wanted to know was which school of thought would Jesus side with. Now what's really concerning to Jesus is that they are looking for reasons to get out of the marriage when they should have been looking for reasons to what? Stay in the marriage. Jesus was a realist. He knew that if somebody abandons you, there's nothing you can do about that. I don't think Jesus would have advocated if your husband beats you or abuses your children, you are obligated to stay with him. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is people, for the sake of convenience, looking to get out of a relationship because they're unhappy. And after all, we have a right to be happy, don't we? So that's what's really dealing with here. That's what Jesus is contending with. They said to him, well then, if that's true, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that was not what was intended. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, most people understand that exclusion clause, except for sexual immorality, to mean if your husband cheats on you, if your wife cheats on you. That is not actually what the text means. Buckle your seatbelt. The word that Jesus uses there, translated sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And what it really meant was if there was an impediment to the marriage, a man had a right to divorce her. For example, and this is the most obvious example, we are told that when Joseph discovered that Mary was expecting a child out of wedlock and that child was not his, and you know they had not yet officially been married, he was nevertheless going to divorce her quietly. In Judaism in the first century, an engagement was a legally binding contract. 
And if you were going to break the contract, the husband had to divorce the wife. There had to be a legal breaking of that contract. So why does he want to divorce Mary quietly? Obviously, because she's expecting a child and he knows it's not his. So he thinks that there is what? Some sort of impurity that has taken place. She's been unfaithful to him. She's broken the contract. There is an impediment to the marriage. And that's why he wants a divorce. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, why is that important? It's important because what Jesus does is he takes the side of the stricter school. Instead of lowering the standard or finding a middle way, Jesus actually takes the importance of marriage to a whole new level. He's basically saying, you're looking for a reason to get out of this. You ought to be looking for a reason to stay in it. And the only reason to get out of it is if there was a problem on the front end. See, the problem was their what? Hardness of heart. Now that is important because what that tells us is that Jesus was upholding the Jewish law. You'll know that Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And that would be the Levitical law as well. Far from undermining what the, New, what the Old Testament said about sexual relations in the context of marriage, Jesus was upholding them. The reason why homosexuality is never mentioned in the Gospel is because Jesus operated in what context? A Jewish context. And within Judaism, everybody knew it was condemned, punishable by death, by stoning. Paul deals with it, why? Because he's not operating in a Jewish context where it's taboo. He's operating in a Greek culture where it is accepted. That's why we have to deal with it, because we are dealing with it with what? In a secular culture where it is accepted. Now, time's flown by. Maybe not for you. But for me, it's flown by. Now that being the case, that that's where the Bible is, it raises a couple of other questions. What causes this? Is it a matter of nature? Is it a matter of nurture? And if it's one or the other, what should be the church's response to this? How should we as Christians respond? It's interesting to note that when Paul talks about these things, for example, in, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, he lumps homosexuality together with a whole host of other things. Doesn't he? He said, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were unrighteous. He said you were greedy, and you were drunkards, and you were adulterers, and you were homosexuals, and all of these different things... He lumps them all together. So somebody might ask, well, why in the world does the church hammer on that one in particular? Good question. And that's what we want to deal with next week. How should we deal with these issues in a pastoral way, true to the Scriptures, and yet pastorally sensitive to the fact that this sin is no greater than any other sin? And by the way, this is important too, what Paul is talking about here is activity, not proclivity. Let me emphasize that. Paul is not talking about proclivity. He's talking about activity. He's not talking about a tendency toward a certain type of behavior. Every single one of us has a tendency toward one kind of behavior or another, oftentimes destructive. How many adulterers do we have out there in the crowd today? All right, here's, here's the question. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, I tell you the truth, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed the act in your heart. There's not a man, a red-blooded man, that goes up King Street past Victoria's Secret that has not committed adultery. And we all know what the Bible says. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. But most of us are willing to go up there and risk one eye at least. <laughs> so we all have the tendency toward one kind of behavior or another. Jesus makes that very clear. He levels the playing field. We're not talking about proclivity, 
tendency, desire. We're talking about activity. And that's something different. So next week, I want to finish this up. For the three of you that are going to show back up to hear the rest of this next week. I want to finish this up by talking about what should be our pastoral response. All right, if this is what the Bible teaches, nevertheless, and Paul says it's no worse than any other sin, what should be our pastoral response to this? And why does the church seem to hammer on this issue in particular as opposed to all of those other things that Paul mentioned? That's what I want us to take a look at next week. So important subject. As I said, weighty stuff here in this first chapter of Romans, but it sets the tone with the good news that Paul is going to proclaim to the world. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you, and it's so easy for us who live in glass houses to cast stones. Father, the word is clear. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one, and that includes the man who's saying this prayer. We are all broken and fallen people, but you are the God whose God, whose property is always to have mercy. And so, Father, it is true. We do suppress the truth. We do turn away. We come up with all kinds of ingenious reasons why we can justify our sinful behavior. But grant us the grace to hear your word, to live humbly under its authority, to allow its power to come in and take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh, that we might repent of our wickedness and follow you, that we might know the truth, that we might know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and we might proclaim him to all the world, Jesus, the lover of our souls. In his name we pray. Amen.